Here I am again, perfect time. Strings ringing and words are rhyming. I used to hate the fool in me, but only in the morning. Now I tolerate him all day long. Good morning and welcome to episode 719 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, brought to you by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com, which I heard mentioned on WGN today by Jim Deshays. That was nice to hear. Mm, what, what context? Did he run a Play Index on the air? Uh, they made reference to some fact that they had found or that they were hypothesizing they might have found or something like that and said, got to get the Play Index out for that. Mm, true. Yeah, always uh, always useful. I'm Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus, along with Ben Lindbergh of Grantland. Hi, Ben. Hello. Uh, and we're joined today by a guest, Jeffrey Paternostro of Amazing Avenue. He is their minor league editor as well as their podcast host, uh, and he is a um, you know an expert on Mets development, the development of future Mets. And so we had him on because we wanted to talk about a Met who developed extremely well. Jacob DeGrom, who, when we arranged this interview, was probably the second best pitcher in the National League this year, or maybe the third best pitcher, one of the three best pitchers in the National League this year. And then he went out and he gave up infinite runs in zero innings, it felt like. Actually, it felt like he was in for a very long time, given that he was allowing infinite runs. But um, it's the timing isn't great <laughs> for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> but he's still very good. He's still exceptionally good. And uh, in my opinion, he is not just a good baseball player, but he is himself a phenomenon uh, because of uh, his career arc. And really, he was just pitching to the future scoreboard. That's true. Because the Mets scored infinite runs plus nine, so they won. That's exactly right. Yeah, they did. They won 16-7. to And uh, his ERA jumped all the way up to 2.29. His whip jumped all the way up to 0.94. He is still an elite ace-level pitcher a true ace and this is was unthinkable a few years ago and we had Jeffrey on partly because Jeffrey uh, saw him in double a etc and didn't think much of him just as nobody did I will uh, I will proudly not proudly but I will boldly state that baseball prospectus did not even have him in an annual until 2014 so the year that he won rookie of the year Last year was the first time we'd ever mentioned him in an annual, and he's not a young man. He is. Uh, he was 26, which means that he made it basically till his major league debut without ever getting mentioned in a BP annual. Which, if you know, we write 70 guys per team every year, um, and so we're having you on to talk about that. Sounds good. Um, I wish I had an explanation. Well, first off, tell me what he was like. As a prospect, uh, from the time he was drafted on, uh, when would a typical Mets fan have heard of him? When would a extremely tuned-in Mets fan have heard of him? And when would an extremely prospect-tuned-in Mets fan have heard of him? And in the latter case, what would have been uh, kind of the the one-paragraph summation of what you knew about him? Sure. Um, He was a ninth-round pick, I believe, out of Stetson. In 2010, the last of the Omar Minaya, Tony Bernazard, Rudy Tarasas drafts, you know, most notably the same draft class as Matt Harvey, did not pitch much uh, in that administration, partially because they were fired after that season, partially because he had Tommy John surgery shortly after his professional debut. 
he popped back up again in 2012 in Savannah and pretty immediately caught the eye of, of Toby Hyde, who writes for uh, SNY.TV and is also the voice of the Savannah Sandnats. That's sort of when he first came onto my radar, we're talking about sort of an extreme prospect guy. And the report there didn't change a ton from Savannah all the way till I saw him for the first time in Double A Binghamton. It was an interesting arm. He was a late convert to pitching. He was a shortstop initially in college. So you, you get a guy like that, you think, okay, it's a live arm. Maybe you teach him a breaking ball. You get lucky. He ends up in the in the back end of your bullpen. And it was certainly a live arm. He was in the low 90s for the most part then. Could touch 95, 96 on a good day. You know, developing slider, developing change up. And it, Enough command, and especially when you're pitching in in low A in that ballpark, historic Grayson Stadium in Savannah is an extreme pitcher's ballpark, big power alleys. If you can throw a, a you know a plus major league fastball for strikes, the ballpark will take care of the rest, and the level of competition is not going to do much to it anyway. Um, so he dominated Savannah, pitched pretty well in St. Lucie too. I think he initially got uh, this would have been the story of his career. He, I believe, he initially got called up to Double A Binghamton because Louis Mateo, who at the time was probably a slightly better regarded prospect nationally, had an arm injury. And by the time I saw him that August, and it, I, I'll say it was one of those days, you know, one of the four days of the year that we New Englanders can actually legitimately complain about the heat and humidity. Um, but there's only so much you can hand wave that kind of stuff at the double A level. You know, you're gonna be, and he pitched through a summer in Savannah, and there was some stuff to like. I mean, he was a prospect um, for the Mets prospect guys, if not so much for the national ones. It was 1994 with two different fastballs. He could change eye levels. He could throw them both for strikes, and the slider and the change would both flash major league quality. It's just one of those things where, you know, it's a guy you'd like to have in your system, back-end starter, maybe a good fastball slider reliever. I thought the slider had the best chance to become a real uh, outpitch at the major league level. But, you know, you see guys like that. They're sort of guys that are 11 to 15 on most team prospect lists. I think that's probably where I had him uh, coming into that season and after that season. Yeah, and that's about when I think you would first—he first sort of gets on on Mets fans' radars after 2013. Yeah, after 2013. So we'll talk. You know, he'd to- gotten into the upper minors. Once you sort of get into into Double A, you're getting into sort of the only one phone, uh, one phone call away kind of thing. And you know, Harvey was up. Wheeler had just come up. You know, Mets fans will start to look for the for the next wave of pitching prospects, and I think he was certainly in there. So uh, we'll talk about what he's like now, but I'm just curious. A couple weeks ago, I heard an announcer with with one of the all-time great bad comps. He said that this guy really reminded him of Bronson Arroyo. It's the hair. It's It's absolutely the hair. It's the hair, and he's long and lean, too. Yeah, and it's completely like 100% so obviously the hair. They're nothing alike at this point in their career. Was there ever a point, though, where he was anything like Bronson Arroyo? Was there... Like, what would you have put a comp on him? Who would have been? I mean, was he even worth comping at that point? Um, I'm not a big comp guy 
I mean, <laughs> uh, I hate to do this because you're going to immediately say it's the hair when I give this comp. It's sort of like Jeff Samarja as a reliever. I, I, as soon as you said <laughs> that, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and even after he came up in the majors, um, before he sort of broke out in the second half of 2014, you could have seen him going that route as well. Again, it's sort of a, it's a late pitching convert kind of thing. Though Samarja, of course pitched in college it wasn't his his main focus i guess i'll put it that way but yeah you know it's a sort of a live fastball big you know big arm strong kid very loose arm action and you just hope he sort of develops a breaking ball so when did you start to believe and why did you start to believe was it a matter of the stuff that you said flashed various things at times just always looking like those things or was it that he exceeded even the flashes, that his his normal became better than the flash. You know, it, it took a while for me um, because of sort of what I had seen in the minors. I was maybe a little a little slower to come around. And when he was called up, he was called up at the same time as Rafael Montero, who was regarded by myself and pretty much everyone that writes about prospects, whether Mets prospects or nationally, as the better pitching prospect. And the expectation was that DeGrom would take a couple turns through the rotation until I, th- I think it was I can't remember they were both hurt uh, during that season I can't remember if it was Dylan G or John Neese that was down with like a minor uh, like back oblique type thing but they also had moved Henry Mejia to the pen so there was one permanent rotation spot and that was expected to go to Rafael Montero but in the short term uh, DeGrom outperformed him so Montero ended up going back to AAA instead of DeGrom, and then, you know, DeGrom had pitched like a, a quality major league starter, if not the ace he would become, would become, and then really the second half of 2014, if you look at it, pretty much the same as what he's given you this year, so if you look at sort of those, you know, three last 365-day stats, he comes out as one of the best pitchers in baseball, if not the best pitcher in baseball, depending on what what metric you want to look like, but look at, but even coming into the season, it was one of those things where you look at it, and you're like, well... Even if you knew nothing else about this guy and his sort of background as a prospect, you would think, I mean, he's got to regress, right? That's how this stuff works. It's his, it's the second season. He's gone around the league once now. You get your advanced reports out on him. But everything's gotten better for him this season on a stuff and command level. And I think I started to see it in spring training this year, and that's when I really bought in. I actually did an, an interview with AM New York, which is like one of the you know one of the free magazines or newspapers you get on the subway for like a season preview type thing. I miss AM New York. It's a fine and, publication. And they asked me sort of the standard kind of like season preview stuff. They like, well, who's a who's a pitcher and a position player to keep an keep an eye on this year, a potential like breakout guy. And I said, you know, I think Jacob Degrom's going to be one of the twenty best pitchers in baseball. Like I didn't really know what I was going to say until it came out of my mouth. I'm kind of glad it did. Um, cause I guess it makes me look pretty good for all that's worth for all the uh, subway riders in New York. <laughs> right. the huge We're actually circulation. paying attention to that. <laughs> right. um, but I think that's the point where it's like, it's like, okay, this is something real now. And if you look at sort of what he's done this year, I mean, we all know sort of the, the research that Bill Petty and I think others have done. Velocity peaks early. Uh, you know, he's 27 now, so we'd expect his velocity to stabilize, if not maybe go down a little bit from where it was in the minors when he was younger. I know the Tommy John surgery makes that a little more complicated. But, you know, if you look at the Brooks baseball numbers, his fastball velocity has gone a full mile an hour up 
this season. He's actually gained two to three on all his secondaries, which I don't think we really think about all the time in terms of how much tougher, how much better it makes off-speed stuff, but less reaction time is less reaction time. You know, he's throwing a 90-mile-an-hour slider now, sort of the the Worthen slider that Eno Saris has written about uh, as well as others. It's It makes... You just don't see that. And it's like, to predict it, you'll see a guy will take a, another Mets prospect made good example, someone like Jairus Familia. Like, you could see him becoming what he did in the minors. Okay, he figured out his mechanics, and the slider got a lot better. That happens. That happens all over baseball. Uh, Noah Syndergaard, his command got better. Now he's got a two-steamer that, you know, gives hitters a little different look, gives them a little more fastball movement. That's This is all stuff that you can project. DeGrom basically improved all four of his pitches that I saw in AA, and he didn't even have a curveball then. He added it after his AAA promotion, and that's become a pitch that gets swings and misses in the majors. And that you just, meant... You said that he gained a mile on his fastball since last year, but if we're just talking about from two or three years ago, he's gained like four ish. Yeah, we'll say you know he's like a ninety-one to ninety-four guy. So let's say he averaged ninety-two to ninety-three, and now he's at ninety-five plus. So yeah. yeah. Okay, explain it. <laughs> um, so he'll tell you that Dan Worthen gave him a mechanical tweak. <laughs> Uh, in interviews, uh, I think he's striding a little further. There's a little more leg drive there now from some reports I've gotten. But it's, you know, stuff like this, I think, defies analysis in a lot of ways, whether it's whether it's sabermetric or scouting. I just think it's kind of cool. And I'm, I'm happy to be wrong about this. Like, I'm, I'm one of those guys that will fully admit when I'm wrong uh, about any prospect, really. And you're wrong all the time. But it's not just because you know it's like, this is the team I ostensibly root for, and it's now all of a sudden got one of the best pitchers in baseball out of nowhere. But I think it's good that there's completely inexplicable stuff like this. Yeah, like, it we'll seems, probably never know the answer. It seems like when we talk about the uh, unpredictability of prospects or the challenge of prospecting and prospect writing and scouting, it seems like we usually focus on the other way. We, we think about the, the you know the Brandon Woods of the world who are can't miss, and yet we know like half of those guys miss. And, um, and if you go even slightly lower, your hit rate is much, is, it's much worse. But this is like an example of a guy that I imagine like nobody saw really anything. Like this seems, it seemed impossible that Brandon Wood could fail, but we all knew it was possible. You know, like you would have that conversation. You could even write the story of how he was going to fail. But this guy is like one of a thousand guys who are essentially indistinguishable from each other. And I, I just don't think you could have gotten anybody to even entertain the idea that he would turn into an ace. And the, the kind of the weird thing, and I don't know how creeped out I should be by this, but the, the other guy who comes to mind as similar, like the two biggest freak show stories of pitching success in the last few years is Corey Kluber, who went to the same school at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe there's, you know, it's probably more of a cor- weird correlation coincidence thing than anything else. But maybe the Stetson pitching coach is a is a secret guru that we just don't know about. But or the opposite, think- he's the opposite. <laughs> oh, he's only. I see though. I see the argument. So he was actually something <laughs> in his methodology was keeping this natural talent from surfacing. Yeah, probably. That's probably the most likely. <laughs> so we've, we've slandered the Stetson pitching coach. So <laughs> we've accomplished that much. But you're right. It's easy to when you're doing this sort of like post hoc 
analysis, it's easier to figure out why a guy busted. It's a lot harder to figure out. And the Mets have seen this to a, a certain extent as well with Matt Harvey in recent years. So I think Harvey's his own, you know, he's the, just the, the pedigree and the background was so different. And he got better at the major league level. But he wasn't, you know, you could kind of see it in the minors. Like maybe you wrote him up as like a number two, number three, and he turned into an ace. That happens. Sure. It's, it's, it's nice when it happens. It doesn't happen often, but it happens. This was a guy that wasn't even really, you know, made his major league debut at 26. He might have been 25. Turned 26 his first season in the majors. And within a couple months of his debut was pitching like a, a bona fide ace. And I don't think we understand aces well either of this of this type because it's not like the stuff's good it's very good uh he has five major league quality pitches if you want to split out the two seamer and the four seamer but it's not obvious if you just watch the highlights i guess is the best way to put it like it's not justin verlander or i guess chris sale gets it in a different way but or matt harvey it's command and movement and he commands all five of his pitches well though it's funny i'm like saying all this after he made probably what was the worst professional start of his career but when he's on it it's he can command all five of his pitches they're all good pitches he can throw them in different counts and some days when it's really good he'll just throw mostly fastballs he'll just change eye levels he'll elevate he'll spot the the two-seamer away to righties and lefties, you know, back door, front door, and he doesn't really need much else. And this was a guy that, again, was, I think you put it best, there's a hundred guys like him right now in in double A, in, in advanced A, double A, triple A. You know, guys that will pitch in the majors in some capacity. You know, maybe back end starter, maybe up and down middle reliever, the good, the good, outcomes maybe a high-end setup or even a guy that closes for a couple years but to to have all all the things that need to happen to be a number one pitcher in the majors basically slightly over two years ago he probably wouldn't have shown you any of them at a certain point it's you just gotta he's been so good and it's one of those things where people aren't gonna by because a lot of it's like he commands everything so well and it's just not something that's gonna gonna flash it's not chris sale slider it's not kershaw's curve not those guys don't have great command either but when it's when it's almost all fastball command that's sort of the the carrying tool and well, it they, took, yeah it took forever for cueto to get an appropriate reputation right i think that's actually a, that's actually a better comp than anything i came up with i'm annoyed about that now um he's got funky hair too mm. But yeah, and he's uh, he's kind of out pitching his peripherals, but not and again. It's not a long. It's not like Cueto level track record yet, where I can say that's meaningful one way or the other. It could just be a random blip. You know, he's got like a 240 BABIP or whatever, but who knows? And he hasn't been like so. The funny thing is, I didn't really touch on that. His reputation, like he was a big two seamer guy. Everyone thought he'd be a big ground ball pitcher in the majors, and he actually got a lot of ground balls in Vegas, which is unusual. But that hasn't really shown up either. He's really a completely different pitcher in a lot of ways than what he was in the minors beyond just like the stuff improvements. 
very, very, very early on, like one of the first few dozen episodes, uh, Ben and I talked about R.A. Dickey, who at the time was sort of, I think had had a, kind of a comparable level of success uh, in the, his previous two years, uh, and similarly out of nowhere, similarly difficult to explain. And we, as I recall, Ben, what did we, we drafted? drafted uh, yeah, because we would want, instead of Dickey, who would prefer to Dickey the following season. Yeah, we. T- I think we took. Yeah, we took all the guys in some certain range, and then asked who we would take, Dicky or that guy. And I think at the time we both, at the end of that exercise, were a little surprised by how pessimistic we were, because uh, he just won the Cy Young Award. Uh, he was a huge trade target. He was great, and there was even kind of a little bit of an explanation for how it had happened, so it didn't feel uh, not replicable. And yet we were surprised by how pessimistic we were. And we ended up being way too optimistic about him. <laughs> so I'm just curious, um, how many pitchers currently in the majors do you think you would take uh, over to Grom in the next, over the next, say, I, I mean, you can pick your time period. You could, you could pick over the next probably three years is what I was going to suggest. But if you want to say for a start this October, that would be fine with me too. Pick your time period and then tell me where he ranks. Well, I think for pitchers, it's always good to sort of limit it to two years just because pitchers are so volatile and there's the always the risk of injury. And once you go past out that, and that's why you know, every time you're giving – I see like a free agent extension. Or I shouldn't say a free agent extension. An extension for a guy under contract that won't be a free agent for two, three years on the line for even a top-level starting pitcher. I get a little nervous. But so for the, let's say for the next two years. We'll say for 16 and 17. My list would probably be Kershaw and Sale. There's another five or six guys that's probably in the same general tier that I that I would make arguments for depending on the day of the week. But yeah, I really, I guess there's no zealot like the convert. <laughs> <laughs> so third, third best yeah. pitcher in baseball. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you'll see like in a, in a theoretical i mean it's unlikely to happen but in a theoretical one game wild card playoff the mets were in that or if they had you know one game they end up tied with the nationals in a one game playoff assuming both were available on on normalish rest i think i would start DeGrom over matt harvey and i think the team probably would too you know, politics, uh, politics aside, I mean, you got to sort of manage the locker room there too. But yeah. I think on a, on a on merit, I think it's probably Degrom. How many? Uh, this is for both of you, and I'll give an answer to. But if you pulled the average BP Fangraphs reader, how many guys do you think the average reader, educated reader, would name before Degrom today? Well, it's probably a dramatically different answer than. Pulling the average fan, I would oh, sure. think it's going to yeah. be it's going to be a a much lower number. There are many fewer starters that the average BP FanGraphs reader would take over to Grom than your average baseball fan. But I the would... average baseball fan probably takes Jake Peavy over him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but I would say it would be higher than Jeff's number, but lower than. Eh, we're talking one start, or are we talking two years down the road? Let's say one start two years down the road. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say I'd say it's probably going to be around 10. Yeah, I was thinking somewhere 12 to 16. I was thinking around 15 to 20, so. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, you would say that he's still uh, crazy underrated? I think so. Um, again, I think part of it's he pitches in the same rotation as Matt Harvey and has pitched in the same rotation previously as Zach Wheeler. You know, Noah Syndergaard's up now. Steven Matz. It's, it's a little difficult to stand out among the Mets' young starters. I think he had a bit of a coming-out party in the All-Star game, obviously. A very impressive one-inning performance there on sort of a national stage, which got him some attention. But I, he has all the tools in his bag to be good for a number of years. And again, with pitchers, it's always, you know, you just never know. But the fact that he has five different pitches that he can command, you know, if one or two of them aren't working on a given night, he can still sort of get through a game. Um, I mean, when, when four out of the five of them aren't working like they were tonight, he threw a few good change-ups. That's uh, less good. But, <laughs> I mean, we, you see the results. Um, but I, I do think, you know, he's going to finish even after the blow-up against the Phillies. He's, you know, assuming we, you know, Greinke will probably win the Cy Young, but he'll be in the next couple of places along with Kershaw and Scherzer, probably Garrett Cole. You know, he'll be top five in the Cy Young voting this year. So I think that will sort of move him into some more national prominence. You know, he's a guy that could certainly make more all-star games, more top five Cy Youngs in in the coming years. It's going to be a weird, it's going to be an interesting next few years for him. Because the funny thing is uh, he was one of the few arms and really I guess players generally that the the Aldison front office hasn't seemed particularly concerned about in terms of like super two stuff. Um, you know, Harvey and Wheeler were both kept down until they would be clearly not be super two. Um Syndergaard this year wasn't as big an issue because he already spent a full year in triple A, so I guess you could argue they got the extra year through that. And, you know, Matt's was down until Super Two uh deadline pass. But DeGrom they just sort of called up because they needed a needed an extra arm and weren't really concerned. He sort of pitched his way into the rotation and he might make, end up making more than any of them in arbitration. <laughs> so, but he'll be like an older free agent too. since he, He's already 27. I, I wonder if the Mets maybe look to try to lock him up long-term this off, this off season. And I don't know what that looks like. So I don't know. I, I guess Kluber's the only real comp there from a sort of age performance standpoint. I'm reading an article from the Las Vegas Review Journal in April 2014 about how DeGrom spent the whole 2013 season suffering from the after effects of breaking a finger while helping a neighbor castrate a calf. Yeah. (laughs) Somebody was holding the back legs and I was holding the front. Their hand slipped and it kicked me. I looked down and my finger was facing sideways. It didn't feel too good. I wish this. It was his non pitching hand, at least. I know. I wish this were the origin story. I wish it were like a. Mordecai three-finger brown sort of thing where he was trying to castrate a calf and his finger got bent sideways and suddenly he could put all this new spin on balls, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Although it might be part of the case of why he was underrated coming into 2014 because he says he was dealing with the injury and he wasn't able to wear a glove and it was putting him off for, for most of the season and he was still adjusting to it last April. So maybe it's part of why we didn't see him coming. I mean, if you do want a little bit of sort of a magical explanation, there is uh, the story that while he was uh, on rehab, Johan Santana showed him, Jacob deGrom, his change-up grip in St. Yes, yes. 
And that made his fastball. That made every other pitch <laughs> take a grade plus jump. Um, so uh, if you ran a website that put out projections and you knew that your projection for DeGrom was going to be, uh, at least it was going to seem to the public and to you uh, way pessimistic for the next few years because it has a long Hypothetically? Hypothetically, if you ran this website named after you know who knows all right so what would you do if you were me like what like what is the appropriate thing to do uh about a player like this who well i mean you would say that he defies projection systems um and maybe the projection system would say aha let me name 10 guys who failed like Ari dickie what is what is your take when next year's pagoda comes out and it's probably going to be like a 3.7 era for him well, the problem is with any of these projection systems for guys that don't have a ton of major league service time, you still are a little bit reliant on past performance. And his minor league performance was not good. You know, for guys that come into the majors as pitchers and are immediately very good major league pitchers, you would assume there's they were pretty good minor league pitchers because the majors are harder than the minors. So, you know, if you look at someone like, I mean, even Garrett Cole, who's sort of, well, the Pirates have their own thing where, you know, you work on stuff. Um, This may be not sort of getting the peripheral numbers that'll light up a Pocota projection, but maybe someone like David Price when he first came up. Or, uh, you know, even guys like Kershaw and Lincecum were dominant minor league starters. I think you're sort of hemmed in by the by the nature of the projection system and sort of what the 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 data demands it's just he was an average double a starter and an average-ish triple a starter maybe a little bit better in in triple a once you account for for vegas and the pcl but there's nothing you're limited by what it looks at and the stuff it looks at is I guess at this point, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so last thing for me, do you put this one in the Mets win column or do you just credit it to the randomness of the universe? Because obviously the, you know, all this wave of young pitching that they have now brought to the majors, I think it's safe to say that they have moved past the Generation K comps. They have had similar injuries, many of them, whether it's DeGrom or Wheeler or Harvey, all with Tommy John surgeries or Matt's more recently, they've had the injuries, but they've also gotten to the majors and pitched at a higher level there than the Generation K guys did for the most part. So do we counterbalance the things that the negative things that people say about the Mets that they don't spend or that they're bad at diagnosing injuries or at least representing injuries when they talk to the media? Do you use this as a as something on the other side of the ledger that they are good at developing talent, or is it too soon to say? Well, I think you have to put Degrom into context, and if it was just sort of a a once in a generation kind of thing, you know that happens. There's weird hits all over baseball. You know, guys you wouldn't expect to be great major league players turn into great major league players. It's not something you want to bet on happening as a general overarching player development scheme but you know he's come up at the same time or within a few years of all these other good pitchers that have taken not just that they've 
become good major league pitchers. They've taken steps forward at the major league level, if not to the same extent that DeGrom has. Um, you know, I've talked a little bit here and there with Paul T. Podest about their sort of philosophy in terms of drafting and development. They don't really think, at least not, they say to me, that they're particularly good at developing pitchers to the point where that's something they would seek out in the draft over other things. They, they sort of, from the indications I've gotten, sort of take it sort of year by year, look at the strengths and weaknesses of the class, and just sort of go from there. They're not necessarily looking for the for the next Jacob deGrom, I guess, which would probably be a, a fool's errand anyway. Now, I, now, on our podcast, I got an email, I think, last offseason sort of asking me to predict who the next Jacob deGrom is. And I'm like, no, it's just, you can't do that. It's, I'm sorry. Um, but I think... You know, development is important. Drafting is very important. You have to get talent into your system. You have to be able to identify guys with potential major league tools. Absolutely. But it's just not that simple. It's not just a matter of picking the right guy and then, you know, you sprinkle a little water on them and three years later they turn into whatever they would have turned into normally because you identified that talent. And that talent was sort of a, there was going to be a linear progression no matter what organization they were in, no matter what coaches they dealt with. Development's important, and I think the player development system has to get a certain amount of credit. I'm, and Jacob deGrom has to get a certain amount of credit. We always think of development as sort of a, and going from the organization to the player, but the player has to be receptive. He has to be able to make adjustments. You know, he when he's out there, he's out there. You know, the player, all the coaches he has worked with, all the players he's played with and maybe learned from. You know, it's just him on the mound, and he's. For whatever reason, again, I I don't think we'll ever know it. He's that one in a a million guy, or maybe maybe that's a bit extreme, but that sort of long shot guy that's turned into a top line major league starter. And I don't think uh, players get enough credit for their own development, sort of throughout the whole process. I bet. I bet one in a million is a bit much, but I wouldn't be surprised. That, but if he hit his 99.99th percentile Pagoda projection, that wouldn't surprise me. If somebody told me that's what his 99.99th percentage, percentile projection was, I'd believe it. So my last question for you is if you could go back and tell yourself two years ago to give, this, uh, give, give that report another shot before you submit it, uh, would you change anything? I don't think so. I really don't. Um, you just can't. There, like I said there earlier, there are things you can project. You, know, you see a guy who's six foot four and one hundred and seventy pounds and nineteen years old, throwing eighty nine to ninety one. Okay, maybe there's some more velocity there. Maybe that guy's flashing a, a good slider. I mean, that guy's probably eighteen. Jacob Degrom was twenty four, twenty five, and in Double A. Uh, and those guys do turn into major league arms. And I'm actually pretty happy with my report because I thought he would pitch in the majors. I thought he would be a, a major league contributor of some sort. You can only write what you see is what it comes down to, I think. You can't – once you get into that sort of, well, if he takes a great jump here and a great jump there and a great jump there and his command improves and he develops a fifth pitch I haven't seen yet and he can get – you know, major league hitters out with that. I think it's it's a work in progress, and it's one of those things where I only saw him once. Uh, you know, if I had seen him in Savannah a year earlier, maybe a couple of times, I happened to miss him. 
when I saw Savannah that year, and you get more of a of a of a track record on him. You get more of a book. You can see sort of what he does, start to start where he's improved, and if he's improved, he's got more feel now. Maybe he can get a little bit more. You know, he's, the velocity is a little more consistent in the upper end of his range. Maybe he sits there at the major league level. Then you know, there's little things you can hang your hat on that. When you get one look, you're you're at the mercy of the look. And uh, like I said, the weather wasn't great, but again, you know, it's you're going to be playing August games in Atlanta when it's going to be worse. You can't really give a guy a, a pass for that once he gets to double A. At that point, it's like, can you help me in the majors? Are you a major league contributor? And I thought he would be. I just didn't think he would be. I guess the third best pitcher in baseball is what I'm going with. <laughs> well, now that the Mets have morphed into a team that scores 49 runs in four games and hits eight homers in a single game, Maybe they don't even need Jacob Degrom to be one of the best pitchers in baseball anymore, but he has been, and it's been fun to watch, and it's been fun to jinx him and talk about him with you. Thank you, Jeff. Oh, thanks for having me. And you can find Jeff's writing at amazingavenue.com, where he covers Mets minor leaguers. He hosts Amazing Avenue Audio, and he tweets at Jeff Paternostro. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild rate review and subscribe to the show on iTunes. Send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com and support our sponsor, the play index at baseballreference.com. Use the coupon code PP when you do to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. And if you're in Northern California and you've been meaning to come see the stompers, our last home series starts tonight. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So if you want to come see us, this is your last chance. If you are really good at baseball and can be activated immediately, even better. But if you just want to watch from the stands, do that too and let us know you're around so we can say hi. We will be back soon. Good luck with the uh, Jacob deGrom going forward.